Thank you, Jared. We appreciate your presence tonight. I do want to remind you just once again to reemphasize the fact that it must be my voice. I want to just reemphasize the great day next Sunday morning. We want to encourage everyone to come and be a part of that. We'd love for you to bring your friends and neighbors, your family members. We'd love to have them. We look forward to a great day. We're going to be talking about the family, the home. And if there was ever a time in which we need to concentrate on the home, no doubt it's today. And so hope you'll plan to be here for that. We're going to be looking at Proverbs 23, verse 23, a very simple yet profound statement made by Solomon many years ago when he said, Buy the truth and sell it not. This morning we talked about the neglected treasure, that being the soul. Tonight we want to think for a minute or two about the timeless treasure called the truth. It's sad that some people don't realize how great truth is. A lot of folks in our world today don't realize that it is a treasure. If only they would spend time mining that treasure. I would imagine that if those of us who are here tonight, if we knew that there were hidden treasure buried in our backyard, we would be out sifting, wouldn't we? And we would turn every blade of grass, every inch of dirt would be sifted and moved around so that we might find that treasure. By the same token, Solomon tells us that there is a divine treasure. It's called truth. And Solomon said we ought to buy it and sell it not. I think emphasizing the importance of truth in our lives. I want to begin tonight by first of all talking about how we ought to purchase the truth. Solomon said, buy the truth. Why would Solomon instruct people of all ages to buy the truth, to purchase it? I think there are some reasons. I think there are some valid reasons. First, because it's inspired. And that being said, we understand that truth, Scripture, comes to us from God, doesn't it? It comes from a divine source. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired of God. In other words, God breathed. What we're talking about is that which has a divine source, a divine source being Almighty God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. He said, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Many years ago, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. Samuel, or rather David, had the opportunity to pen, as you well know, many of the Psalms that we have. David was a shepherd. He was a king. He was a poet, wasn't he, in many respects? And so David had the opportunity to write God's word. Now, when we talk about the Word of God and the fact that it is inspired, I would point out that Peter tells us everything that we need to know about life and godliness has been revealed. In other words, there are no deficiencies when it comes to truth. Truth is absolute. In other words, it's complete. We have the completed revelation of Almighty God. Now, in the first century, God's Word was in inspired men, wasn't it? Today, God's Word is where? It's in the message. In the first century, we have men who were inspired of God. And they spoke 
by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Acts chapter 2, we read of the apostles being endowed with a baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. These men began to speak in languages previously unknown to them. Now one of the words, one of the reasons why miracles were performed in the first century was to confirm the word. But the apostles, when they spoke in other tongues, they were not speaking gibberish. Sometimes people talk about speaking in tongues today. These men were speaking in intelligible languages. Now somebody says, how do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the question arose in the first century, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear every man in his own language or dialect? And so these men were inspired of God, and they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there are some folks today that believe in ongoing revelation. They have the idea that God's Word is continually coming forth, and we have a continuous stream of revelation from God. Well, the Bible says that we have everything we need necessary for life and godliness. Jude said to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered. In Ephesians chapter 4, let me just call attention to Ephesians 4 for a minute. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the Christ who ascended on high, verse 8, and the Bible says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And really we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Godhead. Jesus came to earth, lived among men. He was the Word who became flesh. Well, in verse 10, Paul said, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, in verse 11, listen to what Paul said. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Well, why, why so? Listen to him in verse 12. For the equipping or the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, look at verse 13. Pivotal passage till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in the first century, you had miraculous gifts. Those miraculous gifts were ongoing. As a matter of fact, the apostles had received that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Day. They had the ability to confer that gift on others. They would lay their hands on people. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 8. Those gifts were necessary as revelation was coming forth. You remember in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talked about how he received revelation from God. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Well, do we need the miraculous today? Do we have miracles ongoing today? Well, the answer is no. Why is that? Think, a minute, think for a minute about a building. The other day, Jared and I were downtown at Methodist Hospital. And they are building some enormous structures down there. And they've got cranes and they've got all kinds of equipment that are working in trying to erect this building or several buildings in that particular area. When those buildings are completed, what do they do with the scaffolding and with the cranes and other types of equipment? They remove it, don't they? 
By the same token, miracles were necessary in the first century. The miraculous was necessary in the first century. But once we receive completed revelation, no need for that. Now look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, listen to what Paul said. He said, love never fails, but note the contrast. But whether there are prophecies, he said, they shall fail. He said, whether there are tongues, listen to him, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, I know that there are a lot of sincere, genuine people in the world today, some who honestly believe that they can speak in other tongues. Well, Paul here, writing by inspiration, and by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said that the things which I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul received revelation from God. He wasn't taught it. He didn't receive it by man, as he said to the churches of Galatia. But rather, it came from God. That was the source. And so, to those who would say that they have the ability to perform the miraculous, to speak in tongues, etc., listen again to what Paul said. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. Now, some people have the idea that the perfect that Paul is talking about here speaks of Christ. Not true. He's talking about revelation. Revelation was given bit by bit, piece by piece, and ultimately we gathered all together, and what, we ha what do we have? We have the completed Word of God, don't we? So you think about the inspiration of Scripture, and we talk about purchasing or buying the truth. Why is it so important to buy the truth? Well, number one, because it's inspired of God. It is His completed revelation to us today. We have everything that we need to know in terms of becoming a child of God, living a faithful life, and ultimately going to heaven. There's a second reason why I think we ought to purchase the truth or buy the truth, and that is because it is informative. Not only is it informative, it is instructive. Listen again to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture, given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, listen to him, and instruction. Two things you need to understand. Number one, truth is authoritative. When we preach and teach, we're not preaching and teaching a message that originated with us. But rather, we are simply spokesmen for God, aren't we? As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. The lessons that we present are to be rooted in Scripture. Now, the Bible speaks of being authoritative. Jesus said, all authority had been given unto me in heaven and on earth, in Matthew 28, 18. I would remind you that God the Father said of Jesus, while on the mountaintop, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John, Elijah and Moses appeared on the scene, and God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. So whatever the Lord says, we need to listen, don't we? We need to make sure that we hear Him. And then Paul would teach in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That simply means to do it by His authority. So first, truth is authoritative. 
Secondly, it is attainable. In other words, we can understand it. Now, I said a moment ago that truth is informative, it's instructive. Can you imagine God giving us a message so complex and so abstract that there's no way we could comprehend it? Does that make sense to you? Doesn't make sense to me. Now, there are some folks today that say, you know what, you can't understand truth. You may need somebody to interpret truth for you. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. Did he know what he was talking about? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, I mentioned a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 3, he said he received revelation from God. He took that revelation, he wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Could they have understood the divine message that the Apostle Paul presented to them in Ephesus in the first century? The answer is yes. Can we understand the truth of God today? Again, the answer is yes. Listen to him in Ephesians 5, in about verse 17. He said, Be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, let me just let you in on a secret. Do you know why some people do not know what God's Word teaches? You know why some folks in the church don't know what the Bible teaches? Can I tell you? They don't study, and we don't study. If we don't study the Word of God, we won't know the Word of God. It doesn't come to us by osmosis. You can't lay your hand on the Bible at night and go to sleep and hope to somehow receive that revelation and enlightenment. It doesn't work that way. No, you've got to spend time in this book, don't you? And one of the reasons why some folks aren't what they ought to be in the body of Christ is because they aren't grounded in the truth. You've got to know the truth and you've got to be grounded in the truth. The Great Commission, for example, two parts. First, evangelistic, isn't it? First part, evangelism. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second part of the Great Commission, edification. What is edification? It means to build up. And so he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Look, you can't get all the knowledge you need about the Scripture two times a week or three times a week. You've got to invest in study. You've got to roll up your sleeves and get busy. And so again, I think about people today, sometimes people say, well, you know, I just don't know what the Bible teaches. Look, if you want to know what the Bible teaches, the only way I know to do it, open it up, begin to study. Now somebody says, well, aren't there things in Scripture that are difficult to understand? Didn't Peter talk about some Scriptures that the Apostle Paul wrote that are hard to understand? Yes, he did. I would grant that there are some things in Scripture that you're going to have to spend some time on. And you're going to have to chew on certain passages over a period of time. I think I told you before, I had a professor in graduate school on one occasion. I had written a paper on a particular part of the book of Revelation. It had to do with the Roman emperors. And my take on the Roman emperors was different than his take. And my teacher at that time was probably well into his 70s, Rex Turner. And I remember him telling me, he said, listen, he said, you study this for about the next 40 years and then tell me what you think. 
Well, you know, sometimes, and by the way, he probably was right, and I was wrong. But the point is, some things in Scripture are difficult, but the basic fundamentals of the faith are understandable. So Scripture is informative, instructive. If you want to know the will of heaven, you've got to spend some time in this book. There's a third thing, and that is truth is indispensable. There are a lot of things that you have in your personal possession that I would imagine are extremely important to you. If somebody came into your home and said, all right, here's, here's the deal. I want you to, to pare down everything you have into a box about the size of this pulpit. What would that, what would that necessitate? Some things got to go, don't they? Some things got to go, some things got to stay. What would you keep? What would, what would be indispensable? I would imagine that there are some family heirlooms that might mean a lot to you. I have a pocket watch in my possession that was my grandmother's. It was his, well, it would be my great-grandfather's watch. And it's very old. No longer runs. But you know what? It's not for sale. If somebody said, look, I'll give you $1,000 for that watch, it's not for sale. Why? Because it means a lot to me. So there are some things that are indispensable. Well, is truth indispensable to you? It was to the psalmist. The psalmist said, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day in Psalm 119.97. In verse 105, he said, your word is the lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Why is it indispensable? Because I'm here on planet Earth. My goal is heaven, isn't it? So if I want to get from here to there, how do I do that? I've got to follow the road map, don't I? The GPS. You remember the apostle Paul talked about some who minded earthly things? And he said, our citizenship, however, is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior. So we are citizens of this country, but citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want to go to heaven, don't we? If we want to go to heaven, then we've got to stay with the book, don't we? That's why Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. In other words, he's saying it's indispensable. Don't sell it. Don't give it up. If somebody were to ask you, as I said a moment ago, to pare it down, to pare down everything you have into a small box, what would you keep? I can tell you one thing you ought to keep. The Bible. Fortunately, if you have one of those little handheld devices like Billy has and a lot of us do, that little mini computer, you've got it in your hands. Put it in your pocket. All I'm saying is truth is indispensable. There's a second thing I want to share with you tonight as we think about the timeless treasure called the truth. And that is we must practice the truth. In other words, our behavior has to align with truth, doesn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 about the scribes and the Pharisees? In a very scathing series of denunciations, as we say, he laid the wood to them, didn't he? He blistered them. He identified them as hypocrites, didn't he? And do you know what he said about them? He said, they say 
and do not. All he was saying is, look, you guys, walk, you guys talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. And Jesus is saying, if we want to do what's right, then we're going to follow his word, aren't we? James, you remember James in James chapter 1? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So our behavior has to align with divine truth. So what about our behavior? Is your behavior in harmony with the will of God? In 1 John chapter 1, John talked about those who claim to walk in the light. He said, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In other words, here's somebody who says, you know what, I have a relationship with God. And I'm living for the Lord, but John said, in truth, you're walking in darkness. So what's the conclusion? He said, you lie and do not the truth. But he said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So, we profess and we practice what? Truth. So how about my behavior? First, got to make sure what we say is in line with truth, don't we? That has to do with our words. Have you ever thought about how much attention in Proverbs is given to the tongue? And then take the book of James. And James is really the New Testament counterpart to the book of Proverbs. And so you got the book of James, and James is talking about pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father. And one of the manifestations of genuine religion is what? Making sure the tongue is in check. Sometimes our tongue, our words, our speech doesn't harmonize with what we profess. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 at verse 12, he said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example in word. It's what you say. Did you know Jesus said, every idle word that men shall speak, they'll give an account thereof in the day of judgment, Matthew chapter 12 and about verse 37. Here's what James said, so speak as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. That's why Paul would say, look, don't let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, use your tongue carefully. Measure your words carefully. In Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 31, the Bible talks about the worthy woman. And he says that her price is far above rubies. And if you read Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in about verse 10, you can't help but be impressed by the lady spoken of, by the writer there. He talks about her industrious nature, the care, the protection that she gives her children, the relationship that he has with her husband. And the Bible says, speaking of this lady, she opens her mouth in wisdom. On her tongue is the law of kindness. All he's saying is, look, here's a godly woman, and she uses her tongue in the right way. So as a Christian, shouldn't we do the same? Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? Don't let anybody despise your youth, but be an example of what? In your speech and what you say. 
If we're out on the ball field and we're yelling and, and cursing and saying things we ought not to say, and somebody says, I thought you were a member of the church, doesn't that reflect badly upon us and upon the church and upon what we claim to be? Second thing, not only are we to be an example or not only are we to respect the truth, reflect the truth by way of our words, but our ways. Paul said, be an example in word, in manner of life, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And there Paul's simply saying, live like a Christian. First, you talk like a Christian. Secondly, you carry yourself like a Christian. When people see you interacting with your family, your friends, when you're on, when you're on vacation, when you're at the park, wherever you may be, act like a Christian. Carry yourself like a child of God. The scribes and the Pharisees couldn't stand Jesus. And Jesus chided them because they were hypocritical. And there are a lot of folks in the world today, they use hypocrisy as a crutch. It's not really a crutch, but people use it in defense of why they're not members of the body of Christ or why they're not Christians. Look, the bottom line is if we, if we conduct ourselves like we ought to in our words and in our ways, it won't be a problem, will it? Now you think about practicing the truth. It begins by respecting the truth, understanding that this book comes to us from Almighty God. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 161? My heart stands in awe of your word. Samuel in the long ago said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. That ought to be our attitude. We are respectful of the word of God. So we respect it and then we reflect it. In other words, we live it out every day. Did you know one of the greatest, well, let me just back up. We talk about the verbal presentation of the Word. Is it important? Is it powerful? Yes. The, the power's not in the messenger, it's in the message. But sometimes the most forceful, powerful sermons are those that are never uttered. In other words, it's a demonstration of who you are. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 for a minute. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and listen, if you would, to what Peter said. In the context here, he's talking about a Christian wife married to an unbeliever. And so Peter is addressing this situation. He's been talking about submission, the slave-master relationship. He talked about the submission of Christ back in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he goes on to stress submission in the home. The headship of the husband, the submission of the wife. And by the way, if the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, as Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, then there is willing submission in the home. But nonetheless, listen to what he said in chapter 3. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by what? by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. 
Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know what Peter's saying there? He's saying if you're married to somebody who's not a Christian, you live the Christian life day in, day out. You show people what it means, you show your mate what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to beat them over the head with a Bible. You don't have to throw a rope around them and try to drag them to, church, to the church building. You just live a Christian life, a Christian life. And as you live that Christian life, what does it do? It becomes attractive, doesn't it? And ultimately, it can lead to the conversion of the mate. So we talk about practicing the truth, purchasing the truth. A third thing, very quickly, proclaiming the truth. Why is it so important to proclaim the truth of God? First, there's a mandate to proclaim the truth. And then secondly, we talk about the messengers who, procl who proclaim the truth of God. First, think about this mandate. I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew 28, 18. All authority been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We have the responsibility to go, don't we? Sometimes we sit back and hope people will come. Jesus said go. Look at Mark 16, 15. Go therefore, preach the gospel to the nation, to the world. So, we are instructed to go. But think with me for a moment or two about those who proclaim this message. There are two things that I think stand out in light of this point. In order for us to take this message to other people, we've got to understand the urgency, the immediacy of the hour, don't we? Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1? Today's the day of salvation, verses 1 and 2. No time like the present. Who's responsible for carrying the gospel to the world? Preachers, missionaries, elders, deacons? How about all of us? It's everybody's responsibility. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin council? And they were commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. You remember that occasion? They had healed a lame man at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And so as a result of that, they drew the ire of the religious authority. So they're called in on the carpet. And the Bible says in about verse 13 that they recognized that these men, Peter and John, were untrained, unlearned men. In other words, they hadn't been to some rabbinical school. They didn't have any formal education. But the Bible says they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. And because they had been with Jesus, when the command went forth not to preach or teach in the name of Christ, you know what they said? We cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Why? Because God's Word was burning within them. Now, I want you to look at something very quickly. Look at Acts chapter 5. I want you to see something in light of this. In Acts chapter 5, we have an account of the apostles collectively being called on the carpet. Verse 40, the Bible says, When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now look at verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as a Christ. You know what? That covers everything, doesn't it? Publicly and privately. Do you know why the church grew in the first century? I can tell you why. Because they had a message that had to be shared. And they weren't willing to hold it back. They realized, number one, people were lost and dying in sin. Number two, they realized they had the remedy, the antidote. The antidote, the gospel. And number three, they were willing to be used by God to spread the seed of the kingdom. Why is it important for us to know the truth? Because we can't sow what we don't know. If we don't sow and people don't know, guess what? The church doesn't grow. Now I understand God gives the increase. Paul said Apollos watered, he planted, but God gave the increase. But look, we are the human instruments, aren't we? If the church is going to grow, we've got to take the gospel to people. Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. The psalmist said, send out your word and your light. We have the opportunity to share the greatest message in the world. It's the gospel. And the gospel is the antidote for sin. And the only way people can be saved is by hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel. And you might be the only person that can reach somebody. They're not going to listen to, a, they're not gonna listen to, to somebody else because they don't know them. They're not going to listen to somebody else because they don't trust them, but they know you, they trust you, and so they're going, to, they're going to give you an audience. So, what does that say to us? We need to be teaching the Word, don't we? The timeless treasure called the truth. Solomon said, buy it and don't sell it. Purchase it, practice it, proclaim it. If we do that, I can assure you God will be pleased. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ believing that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe Jesus is the Son of the living God and you would be willing to repent of all your sins and do what they did on Pentecost Day, they repented, they were baptized, they enjoyed the forgiveness of their sins, Acts 2, verse 38. God added them to the church, Acts 2, 47. And the assurance given to them as well as us, be faithful until death, the promise being the crown of life. If we do that, then we're in good standing. And one day we'll hear God say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to His cause, could I encourage you to come home? Why not come home to a loving God who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing?